I feel like I spent the last three, four years trying to learn how to be an organizer, like a, you know, and then you, there, there are actually tools and things you can learn. And then there are certain things from the world of graphic design that kind of lend themselves well. And so now I'm trying to kind of like step back and think about, you know, A, what role does graphic design play, but also look at the labor of graphic designers or the labor of designers. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, conversations on how we live where we live. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with Daniel Aubert, a graphic designer interested in the means of production and labor. Danielle joins us today to discuss her work on and in Detroit. Danielle, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So among the many projects you've been engaged in uh, recently, I know you've been doing research on the work of Freddie Perlman and the Detroit Printing Cooperative. Who was Freddie Perlman? Freddie Perlman was a leftist. He kind of resisted any kind of labels, but he was interesting to me because he's sort of like a leftist thinker and writer who got really interested in printing, opened this printing cooperative that was like this site where anybody could print for free as long as you learn to use the machines and kind of maintain them. He sort of opened it with a group of people, but he got really interested in print technology and started experimenting with ways of putting together books and like pamphlets and things. And so at a certain point, I got interested in like Detroit's graphic design history and trying to figure out, you know, Detroit isn't a place where we have a ton of like universities or like schools necessarily that are doing graphic design. There's Cranbrook um, Academy of Art, which is like 45 minutes away in the College for Creative Studies in Detroit. But like when we talk about graphic design history in the U.S., it's usually organized around or it's like what kind of oriented around East Coast or West Coast. So I started to look at for Detroit's graphic design history. And then I came upon Freddie Perlman's work, which, you know, he's totally untrained, but was like really interesting to me because it was sort of political, but also just like very idiosyncratic. That's sort of how I started to research it. But but he's mostly known as a sort of like anarchist writer, anarchist thinker, specifically anarcho-primitivism. And he and his wife, Lorraine Perlman, founded a black and red press, which published tons of books. And he's he passed away in 1985, but his wife still keeps black and red press going today. The notion of the Detroit Cooperative Press obviously extended well beyond the Perlmans. So what kinds of things, what kind of people were involved in the co-op? Well, maybe here, yeah, I should, maybe I can give like a a sort of chronology a little bit. So basically Freddie Perlman came to Detroit in um, 1969 with his wife, Lorraine. So he was not originally from here, but he had an appointment at um, Western Michigan University as an economics professor for a couple of years and then moved to Detroit in 69 at a time when it felt like kind of there was revolutionary potential in the city. There had been the uprising in 67 and there was a lot of like activity going on around unions. The League of Revolutionary Black Workers was active in the city. There was a, you know, Black Panthers party. And then there were like, there was a publication called The Fifth Estate, which is also still going, which was a kind of a, now it's called like an anarchist publication at the time. I don't think they identified themselves that way. But so they moved to Detroit and kind of met some other like-minded people and decided to set set up what they called at the time a revolutionary printing cooperative where they wanted to print, they were printing pamphlets and things that they were writing, but they were also kind of working alongside members of um, SDS, Students for Democratic Society. 
And like at that time, it was really important to be able to print in order to get your message out or whatever, you know? So there, so there was actually like, um, I wouldn't say like censorship, but like printers weren't always willing to print certain kinds of things because it could get them into trouble. So when Freddie and Lorraine Perlman moved to Detroit, they kind of like set up network of places where they could produce pamphlets. So there was like a, one place where they would do the typesetting and then someplace else where they would do the printing. And then at the end of 69, they found out a, a used offset press that they could get access to. And then they collected funds, kind of borrowed money. And then a group of about six, six or seven people set up this Detroit printing co-op. And that ended up running from 1970 to 1980. And so they didn't really have like official members, but they had more what they called users. And it was like, they kind of resisted. They didn't want to be a part of any kind of political party or anything like that, but they were like committed to being like nonprofit. Also, they also became members of the IWW, Industrial Workers of the World. And so they created this like logo, like a kind of like printer's label that says abolish the wage system, all power to the workers that they printed on everything that they put out. And they considered the property at the co-op to be like, or like to, they considered the machines to be social property. So like anybody could use whatever they wanted as long as they, you know, kind of helped keep it up. Some of the groups that came through there were members of the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, which was like this, I could talk about them a little bit, you know, later, but they were like a group of that had come out of the car factories. They were sort of this like, Marxist-Leninist kind of militant group within the labor union that was sort of resisting UAW leadership, which at the time was kind of conservative and um, white, like was like dominated by white people. So they kind of, it was like a group of like militant black workers that started this group. Some of them were using the print facilities, but then, um, but that was just only like one small group. It was a lot of people from the fifth estate were using it, members of Students for Democratic Society, and then just other kind of random people. And among many other things came out of the co-op in that decade, I understand the first English translation of Debord's Society of the Spectacle, for example, just to give our listeners some sense of the, some of the intellectual commitments. Yeah, that's actually how I came into this project was I didn't like, so, so there's a first English translation of, of um, Society of the Spectacle was printed at the co-op and they also did the translation. It was like an unauthorized translation. It's like an edition that a lot of people are kind of familiar with. It has a picture on the cover of people sitting in a theater with 3D glasses on. And that was just a picture that one of them found and decided to use. So all the images in it are used with, without rights. But it's, but it's interesting because French edition, the Guy Debord's original French copy is like kind of like, is like very um, sedate. It has no images. It's sort of classical typography. But then when they did the U.S. edition, they brought in images that they put, that they kind of like used to sort of like illustrate the text in a way. And then that ended up being really like the, the only copy that circulated in English until the 90s when um, like another translation came out. So that was the copy that I kind of recognized. It was surprising to me to find out that that was actually printed in Detroit. That was certainly the edition that I encountered in grad school, right, when I first was exposed to Boer and... So what's so powerful, Danielle, about the story is the notion of the, the means of production in a city like Detroit that, of course, has been compared to, you know, as, as much as any other, you know, American city, a place in which, you know, uh, labor rights, labor union, labor organizing have been at the forefront. But the, the very means of production, the notion that there was a kind of surplus offset printing rig available and that that could then be made in a kind of 
kind of cooperative anarchic form to all number of users, I think is just a fantastic entry point. So, so this is a research project that you uh, developed for some time and it took the form of an exhibition. So tell us about this exhibition and, and what were the choices you faced and who were the audience for the exhibition so that uh, we might understand how you interpreted the work of Perlman and his collaborators. I first became aware of this work at an exhibition that was in Hamtramck organized by Steve Panton, who had a gallery in his apartment in Hamtramck. It was on Edwin Street and it was like open, you know, weekends or whatever. And he had pulled together a lot of the black and red publications. And I saw Society of the Spectacle there. And then some other books that this book called Manual for Revolutionary Leaders, which was actually written by Freddie and Lorraine Perlman under a pseudonym, Michael Velli. And then there was another book called Incoherence of the Intellectual, which was like very heavily illustrated that was on display. And I saw those and I thought like, I just thought it was interesting because I just had never seen these before, but there was like so much care and attention was given to printing them. And then Lorraine Perlman was, was there one of the days that I visited the exhibition. So I first like kind of became aware of it then. And I spoke to Steve Panton who curated that show about it. And I was like, you know, it'd be interesting to look at this from the perspective of graphic design. I mean, black and red is just like very well known, among, I think among, I, I wasn't that familiar with that press, but really like if you're kind of like active on the left or like reading a lot of left stuff, people know it because they translated a lot of texts that weren't otherwise available in the US. I mean, Society of the Spectacle is sort of the most, the thing that circulated the most widely, but there were like a lot of other texts that kind of people knew. So I was like, you know, it'd be interesting to look at it from the perspective of graphic design. And then he kind of encouraged me over the years, you know, he's like, you should really do that. Like we talked about that. Let's like do a show like that. So then a few years later, he had another show. He had another, he moved into a proper gallery space called 9338 Campo in Hamtramck. And then he helped meet Lorraine Perlman and talk to her about what she was doing. And I became interested in actually looking at the co-op itself as a site of production. So like not just the things that Black and Red printed, but like all of the groups that printed there and trying to think, because a lot of times when you look at publications, you know, you can search by author or by publisher or sometimes by designer, but to search by printing location is like hard. Um, It's not information that's like cataloged, but they had this crazy bug, the union label, you know, that says like, abolish the wage system, abolish the state, all power to the workers. And I had actually seen that bug before, you know, and always been like, what is that about? And so anyway, I sort of decided to organize the whole show around the bug and like, and sort of try to think like, okay, if they were trying to be non-hierarchical in the way that they set up their co-op, how does that translate in like visually? You know, what does like the visual manifestation of like a place that's opposed to the wage system look like? And it does it look like something specific or what? And then it also ends up, so it kind of ended up being like this record of um, like a snapshot of this political history of Detroit. And Freddie Perlman's things are kind of the most like visually experimental things that were printed there. But there's a number of other things that are just kind of these oddball things that were printed there that I was into. Like for instance, there was this one, there was like this like set of newsletters that were printed by a group It was a group of architects and engineers who were trying to organize kind of like a union within Detroit's, among like Detroit's people who worked in architecture studios here. And I don't think it succeeded, but there's this record in these um, newsletters called The Gnomen, but it's all written like under pseudonyms. So I actually don't know who was publishing these things, but they have these like critiques of like, of like development projects that were happening downtown at the time, like the Blue Cross Blue Shields building, which is still there. They have this whole kind of 
take down of that building. So by, by bug for our listeners, you're referring to the co-op's uh, kind of logo, their kind of, you know, their imprint, their kind of stamp, this thing that, and, and how would they use it? Where would that appear? Yeah. So anything that was printed at the co-op would have that on it. It's not a logo exactly, but it's something that's um, used in union print shops. So if you ever get any kind of like political sign, normally it's, if it's printed at a union shop, it'll, they'll print this little union label and it's tiny usually. And it says like allied printing. And it just means that like all stages of production were done by unionized workers. These would be all those, all those lawn signs, right? So all the political lawn signs are. I mean, and so like union shops don't always include that bug on it, but if you ask for it, they'll put it on it. But if you're non-union, you can't put that bug on it. And it's basically like a stamp that kind of marks the type of labor that went into making something. But then the co-op members joined the IWW, which is like a pretty alternative type of union. It's different from like traditional trade unions. It's more radical. It's more kind of invested in direct action. And global. I'm committed to the left globally. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's basically like all workers belong to the same union. So it has kind of these, it has this big, you know, the wheel of industry thing. And then like the print communications is like one category. So the co-op, it, it, had, it must have had space somewhere in the city. So describe to us, what was its physical space in the city? Yeah, so they were in um, southwest Detroit. Uh, and I think it was on Michigan Avenue, like Michigan and Vinewood, uh, for people who know the city. And the building's not there anymore. But, and in fact, the reason they closed in 1980 was because the building owner sold to sold the building and then it was raised after that. So Lorraine Perlman describes it as just sort of cavernous and unpleasant. Sounds like it like leaked and stuff. They, they got the space quickly because they had, they got the printer before they got the space. So they kind of like one group of people went to pick up the printer and the other group had to like secure a location and the building that they were in from, you know, my understanding, it must've had two stories or it had two stories at least because upstairs was the printer was a, for the radical education project, which was the students for a democratic society, like printing arm. And they had been in Ann Arbor Michigan, which is like 45 minutes away, they had been in Ann Arbor up until like 69. And then they moved to Detroit because everybody was sort of trying to move to Detroit, which would be like where the working class revolution could happen. But it sounds like it wasn't nice. (laughs) That's what Lorraine says. You know, she talks a lot about how like actually the work was difficult work. It was kind of dirty, but it sounds like it was collegial. Like there was like, it was like there were a lot of people coming in and out and people had good conversations and had like fun printing, but... Timely story uh, couldn't be more timely for the, the range of uh, the range of issues that we're confronting with today in the American city. But I'm taken by this image of the securing of the surplus printing press as the means of production. That's the kind of launching of this venue for disseminating a range of, of viewpoints. And in some ways, the history of printing suggests that. No, I mean, is it too much to read into the printing press and its history as as a vehicle for the dissemination of ideas that are both endorsed and otherwise? No, it's actually totally, the, the connection between printing and, you know, politics is really rich and an old history. And so like, like, like one of the things that, it's like a bunch of things related to this, but one of the things I learned more about while I was researching the printing co-op was just that connection between anarchism and printing and like how there's like all these sort of tropes about anarchists being really into printing for a long time. So there's an old anarchist printer named Joseph Labadee. There's a collection of um, 
in the archives at the University of Michigan called the Labadee Collection, which is named for Joseph Labadee, who was like a, I guess, like a pretty well-known anarchist printer. But also, there's also this sort of like long time connection between anarchists using old printers, like old broken down printers. So the printing co-op had this press, but it was actually a 50 year old press. So even when they got it, it was like difficult to use. And a lot of the things that they print are kind of like, they're kind of like badly printed. There's sort of like a long history of these like anarchists using printers that don't really work to print their stuff and get it out. But but another thing is, is that there's this episode that I became interested in in Detroit's printing history around um, the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, who were who was this sort of like, you know, kind of labor militant labor group. Some of those members were printing this newspaper called Inner City Voice for a while. And that group was having trouble printing it in Detroit. So they couldn't, they would print it someplace and then that printer would get raided by like FBI and then they would have to move to another printer. And then printers started to turn down printing inner city voice where eventually they had to get it printed in Chicago. And there's this sort of like anecdote that's told in this book, uh, Detroit, I Do Mind Dying, about how they were able to jump from printer to printer in Detroit until the International Typographical Union, the ITU, which was like the union of people affiliated with like a lot of these printers decided that they would refuse to print inner city voice. So basically the union kind of took the reactionary position of refusing to print this black newspaper, which drove them to have to go to Chicago. So I was kind of interested in this moment of the ITU being a kind of like conservative force, but there's a lot of interesting connections between, you know, labor activism, printing, anarchism, kind of alternative printing, um, and then it kind of plays out in Detroit. So Danielle, in, in your work, I wonder beyond the Freddie Perlman and the Detroit Printing Cooperative story, have you run across other histories in a city like Detroit uh, in which the kind of visual production, the graphic, you know, the kind of the visual imagery of the city comes to the fore? I'm, I'm, just, I'm struck by the, the, the vibrancy of Detroit's you know, visual culture. Uh, in our conversations with folks in Detroit, we've learned a lot about the history and tr tradition of street art. We've learned quite a lot, obviously, about the various forms of cultural production. But it strikes me, if I, if I look at your work, I look at the work of the people that you've been researching, there is an absolutely specific kind of energy and vibrancy about the, the visual description of Detroit or the visual culture of Detroit. And I wonder if you could say something about that, having made the decision to, to move to Detroit yourself as a graphic designer. Yeah, that's a good question, because that's something I've been thinking about, I think, since I moved here, you know, in 2005. One of the things that struck me right away when I moved here was the way that Detroit was, in a way, removed from some of the places I was coming from, because I had come to Yale, and most of my friends moved to New York or Los Angeles, and I wanted to move to New York, but my partner had gotten a job at Wayne State University in the English department, so you know, I was like, okay, we'll go to Detroit. I had never really thought about Detroit before that. I didn't, we didn't have a connection here. And when I got here, I was struck by um, just how much of the graphic design world is really situated around like these certain capital cities, you know, like there's like these global capital cities. That's where all the wealth is. That's where all the clients are. And that's where like all the cultural productions happening, like you know, the TV stations, the magazines, the everything. So you do something, you do like, let's say graphic design work for the Whitney in New York, and it gets amplified immediately. You know, I mean, everybody sees it, but it's also like, 
it just goes into the media machine and it's like out there. And then in Detroit, especially at that time in 2005, you know, it felt like you're like outside of this, outside of that circuit. And I was sort of searching for the local visual culture, like what is happening here? Um, and so some of the things, you know, you know, I've always been interested in like used books or whatever. So like my partner and I, we kind of like both of us would like go to the used bookstores and we would see a lot of these old political pamphlets, things like that, you know, things that were, would have been printed at the Detroit Printing Co-op or at places like Sun Press. There was other, you know, other kind of local places. There's Broadside, which is like this um, independent black run, like uh, um, magazine poetry kind of publisher. Broadside Press had like a lot of these pamphlets, but like in terms of like local Detroit graphic design, when I got here, there weren't really any design studios or like, I mean, I shouldn't say there weren't any, but there were very few, you know, and it's still kind of the case. I mean, there's definitely more now, but it's definitely tied to capital. Like it's tied to money. And so as like, money has started to flow back into Detroit since the bankruptcy in 2013. I feel like all of the kind of like appendages have started to build up, you know, like these studios and kind of practices, you know, it's, it's become a space where these kinds of things can exist, but it's, it's, it's hard to, yeah, it's, it's sort of hard to um, put your finger on a specific, I'd say like graphic design language that's here in Detroit. You've touched on the the role of capital uh, since the bankruptcy in the city in 2013. Uh, you've seen over the course of the past 15 years, the city change quite dramatically. So how has the, the visual culture or the, the image of the city changed in that period of time in, in your experience? I would just say it's changed a lot, you know, like from 2005 through maybe 2000. And so I got here in 2005, 2008 was the foreclosure crisis. And then 2013 was the bankruptcy. And so for that period, 2005 to 2013, I'd really felt like everything was flowing out of the city. You know, the overall population was going down. I remember the statistic um, in 2010 where it was like, they did the census and it was like the only city that had lost more population than Detroit was um, New Orleans after Katrina. And, you know, they, they kind of like did a, a survey and it was like most people, more than 50% of people would leave Detroit if they could, if they had the means. So, but you could feel that, you know? And I think like when you're asking about, you know, the visual culture, I'm kind of maybe thinking just abstractly, like kind of about just the buildings or just the way it felt like walking around and it felt kind of heavy and like felt like abandoned, you know? I mean, just to use that word, it felt like things were just like going out, you know, it was just like things weren't, the street lights weren't really working. So now since 2013, since the bankruptcy, there's kind of money coming in and we're getting more of these like new developments, like these kind of like new constructions and like branded developments. And it feels sort of like glossy or something and a bit fake, you know, like it doesn't feel authentic. And so, and so I think there's this kind of weird ambivalence where you're like, it's not that like before it was difficult but then now it also feels sort of like um like it's not of detroit it feels like these things are kind of getting transplanted in i mean like there's one thing that i've sort of um, talked about with friends before which is like sometimes i feel like being in detroit but like I'll, i'll sometimes get contacted by people who are not in detroit who are submitting proposals for new developments in detroit and they need like a local person to represent you know to be on their team and I always feel like sort of like ambivalent about that too, because it just feels like the world's attention has come onto Detroit. All of a sudden Detroit is like where you can kind of 
invest and speculate. And so people are like looking there and they're like, we don't want to parachute in and we just want to be make sure that we're like respecting what's going on in the city. But at the same time, they have like no connection really to the city. And, and so, but it, so it feels like there's a lot of that going on, like a lot of people from outside or people who are here, but have been trained outside of Detroit, you know, which I include myself in that group, who are kind of like coming up with ideas for how to shape the city and how it should look. It feels a bit like, you know, inauthentic or something. So, yeah. What other kinds of work are you doing? What other projects are you engaged in that, that might be interesting to talk a little bit about in, in the sense of, so you say that you, know, you, you often get calls from, you know, teams that are offshore, offsite, they're parachuting in, they're part of international design teams now that, you know, designers are, are all, you know, kind of focusing on Detroit. What other kinds of projects are you engaged in? What, what does your practice look like these days if you're not working with those teams? Yeah, I mean, I shouldn't say it happens that often. It's just, but it, but it's something that you know has happened. So I kind of shifted away from doing a lot of client work a few years ago and started doing, you know, maybe it was sort of like coincides with doing the work on the Detroit Printing Co-op, that research, and sort of switched into sort of more research-based work. But also because I teach at Wayne State, so I have like a full-time teaching job. But I also started kind of getting more involved in like political activism, like after Trump was elected, um, like I think a lot of people did. But so over the last three, four years, I actually spent a lot of time trying to get a handle on the political landscape in Detroit, trying to figure out what all the different groups are, like who's doing what, and then not necessarily as a designer, you know, just like as a person, but then I have this design skill, you know, so then I started, you know, so then of course you kind of end up doing graphic design for all these groups or, you know, like I kind of, you start, you start providing graphics for people. And then, um, and then, so, so lately I'm trying to think about how graphic designers, not just in Detroit, but like everywhere kind of engage with the left and what does it mean to be kind of like leftist graphic designer? Can you give us an example of one of those groups or one of those projects? Yeah. So I, I was very involved with the democratic socialists of America, the DSA, um, which has a pretty active chapter in Detroit. It's like one of the older chapters in the country. I'm also a member of my union, like at Wayne State. It's a AAUP, but it's also AFT, the American Federation of Teachers, which is like one of the biggest unions. And then, or since, you know, the Black Lives Matter protests, I've started to kind of meet more of those people, more of the people that are kind of organizing those in Detroit, which in Detroit, it's, it's a group called Detroit Will Breathe. And they have kind of, maybe this is interesting for you, but they've also kind of, a lot of the key leaders there have been very active in housing rights activism. So through this group called Detroit Renter City. And some of the people that are also part of the Charlevoix Villages Association, which is this like kind of it's a block club that's become like kind of an activist group that's sort of resisting development in, in Detroit in the neighborhood that's now called Island View sometimes. I feel like I after Trump was elected, you know, like I tried to I wanted to, you know, yeah, I like a lot of people, you know, you want to do something, you go to these marches and you're like, let me make a poster or whatever, but this doesn't feel like enough. Or like, let, then let me make a flyer to promote the protest that's about to happen. But then that also doesn't quite feel like enough. So then you kind of get deeper and deeper into organizing. And so I got a lot more kind of involved with like the labor movement in Detroit and then these like various activist groups. And so now I'm trying to kind of like step back and think about, you know, A, what role does graphic design play, but also look at the labor of graphic designers or the labor of designers, you know, is there a way to organize designers as a class? I think things have really changed since like the nineties or like, you know, kind of when I started, when I first became a graphic designer, 
it seemed like, you know, there was magazines like Ad Busters or like Gorilla Girls, you know, there's like that, like ACT UP, there was like kind of that mode of activism around graphic design, but I feel like things have pretty materially changed. So yeah, so anyway, that's kind of what I'm thinking about now. So just, just to build on that, you know, the, we, we began by speaking about the printing press and this kind of tradition, this kind of leftist tradition in which the access to the printing press becomes an important vehicle, both for literary production and pamphlets and, and broadsides and zines and other things. So the democratization, if that's the term to use, or the kind of the lowering of the bar to access to the means of production, the fact that with a simple laptop and a printer, people now have, uh, you know, can avail themselves of all sorts of tools and techniques. Has that, you know, have you seen that in your experience produce uh, more information or a kind of democratization of the voices that are being held, heard in a city like Detroit? Or what, in your estimation, has been that the result of that transformation that now that we all have on the tools that we have available, we, we can all be, you know, amateur graphic designers? Yeah, well, yeah, no, that's one of the things that I am kind of, you know, trying to reflect on is the fact that you really first of all, you don't really need printed flyers, you know, like you just need Instagram posts to turn people out to things. But also that like a lot of times the most effective flyers or graphics or whatever, they're produced by somebody who's one of the main organizers of an event. It doesn't really matter whether they have graphic design skills. And so they kind of like, I mean, I shouldn't say it doesn't matter at all, but I feel like with just some really rudimentary, you know, abilities, you can put things together. And then had this conversation with a friend who designed this, um, you know, this sort of like beautiful zine that was sort of like with texts that were authored by different people who were sort of involved in activism in Detroit. And they had, they had created this zine to pass out um, some of the summer protests, Black Lives Matter protests. But then when the other people in her group sort of determined it was like too beautiful to distribute, it was printed on a risograph printer. And it, they were like, this is too nice. Like we can't give this out for free. And it had all these texts about like, you know, about like why protest now and about, you know, it's like all these like political texts that people have written. But we were just talking about that. I was just funny. It was like, if you design something that's too nice, you don't want to give it out anymore. So it kind of has to be like undesigned um, in order for it to be useful. So yeah, and I think, and then the other thing we were, I've talked about with another friend who's a, who's a, she was a member of DSA in um, California and she's been working closely with nurses, the nurses union out there. And she was talking about how they try to, they've been like trying to train people to use Canva or like these sort of free tools to like free apps so that they can design their own flyers for protests because, because a lot of times the most important thing is to just be able to turn stuff around quickly. And then, so it's like trying to teach people like the basic skills is sort of enough. It's sort of like really what's, what's more kind of effective or more necessary than designing some amazing thing. So, I mean, among the recent projects you've been engaged in through your practice is, um, you know, many kind of directly working with uh, United Auto Workers and other labor organizations with respect to political change on the ground in Detroit. So t tell us about one of those recent projects. This is, a, this is what I think about all the time, because at Wayne State, because I teach at Wayne State, I'm a member of that union, you know, so as a as an academic, which so not as a graphic designer, but as an academic. But I think very few graphic designers are union members, you know, like, but then as an like organizer, you know, in terms of organizing, I feel like I spent the last three, four years kind of actually like trying to learn how to be an organizer, like a, you know, and then you, there, there are actually tools and things you can learn. And then there are certain things from the world of graphic design that kind of lend themselves well. Like I come, I came, you know, as being a part of the DSA and like kind of participating in other local groups, I did realize that I do have a certain skill set that's like, 
like I can do Google forms and all those things really easily, you know, which like for other people, I don't know, like it's not easy for everybody. So like, I'm like, okay, like maybe I should kind of take even like spreadsheet stuff. I should take these tools and sort of like take advantage of that. I mean, and then there were other things where like, because I know how to do graphic design and produce printed things, even though you could say those printed things are not as useful as they once were, there's still moments where they're really useful. Like last fall, um, the UAW went on strike and they, they didn't have enough signs. So at the start of the, so they hadn't really planned on going on strike. And so at the start of the strike, they didn't have enough signs. And there were members of DSA who were auto workers who wanted signs that said like, oh, what is it? it was like, it was like about the tier system. They wanted to abolish the tier system because basically like workers who had come in since the last contract were getting paid less than the old workers. So they were saying everyone tier one, they wanted a sign so they wanted the negotiations to like kind of be oriented around um, how much people were getting paid, but also just guaranteeing that newly employed workers could get paid and could get the same benefits from people who were hired before, uh, before 2009, something like that. I was able to like work with the local screen printing place, kind of a screen printing kind of co-op, Ocelot print shop, and make these signs like in, you know, like in like 24 hours, we turned them around, you know, just because like, I know where you can get cardstock and I know where you, you know, and then I knew that these guys would be willing to print it for free. And so then all of a sudden, everyone had these everyone tier one signs. So then in all the like national media, you know, like Bernie came to visit and people had everyone tier one signs, you know, that they were holding up and it was because we had made them. Yeah, anyways, because MPP, and people like kind of believe in that, but the actual UAW didn't really stand behind that message. But still, I felt like that was a moment where I was like, okay, as a graphic designer, I do have a certain set of skills. But as like a design design, it was so simple. It was just the text. You know, I just had to find a narrow typeface that I could fit like really large on a sign. So Danielle, I mean, I first encountered you and your work uh, now almost a decade ago through this uh, publication uh, that you and your co-editors uh, produced titled Thanks for the View, Mr. Meese, describing uh, your experience of Lafayette Park, where you're not only a co-editor of that volume, but also a, a resident. How did you come to be interested in Lafayette Park as a subject matter for your own research? Well, I moved to Detroit in 2005, and my partner and I, um, neither of us is from the area, and we, you know, we knew that there was this Mies van der Rohe kind of development in the city. Um, we had heard about it, and then you realized we could actually live in it, <laughs> which seemed, you know, to us kind of, I don't know, somehow, somehow we sort of couldn't believe it. But so, yeah, we just visited and moved into the Lafayette Towers and we lived there as renters for several years and then moved down into the townhouses. We bought a townhouse. I started doing the research on the project in, um, I guess, officially like in 2009. But I had a friend it, from graduate school who lived in Croatia and another friend who lived in Brooklyn, Lana Kavar and Natasha Chandani. And basically the three of us talked about trying to do a project together. We felt like Lana in Croatia and me in Detroit, we both felt like we were kind of like on the margins or something. And like everybody else was sort of either in New York or LA or whatever. And, and so we talked about doing a project about place sort of just generically. And I think when we started, we were almost thinking of it almost like a kind of a academic exercise or something, just something to kind of keep us working together and doing something we wanted to do that was less alienating than like the client projects that we were involved in. And so we thought, okay, let's do a project around Lafayette Park because Lana had come to visit me and she had, she, you know, coming from Europe was just also just like, 
kind of amazed that I lived in a in a Misvendero apartment. And then not only that, I rented another apartment on the same floor to use as my studio. It was like $400 a month, you know? So she, it just seemed like so extravagant that like we lived in, this, you know, I had the Misvendero place that we lived in and then also just like could work in the place it, down the hall that, you know, it's like an apartment that we didn't even have, yeah, we didn't have to live in. So, so we sort of started with that, that and we, we sort of thought, said, oh, maybe we'll do like a magazine or something and we'll just interview people who live here. And we knew your book because when we moved here, that was the only book people that was out, that it was around on Lafayette Park. So everybody who lived here had a copy of your book, the case that book. Yeah. So, so that was like, so then, so then, yeah. So then we had a copy of that. And, um, and I think also, cause we were new to Detroit and Detroit is a very interesting city, you know, like, I mean, I'm sure, as I'm sure everybody's listening, realizes, like, as soon as we got here, we kind of tried to get whatever we could find about the city. And then, and then we thought, okay, we'll do, we're not architects, we're graphic designers, but we'll just do something from the point of view of the residents, because we don't really know about Mies van der Rohe. I mean, that was the only part we were kind of nervous about, was that we, we didn't feel like authorities on architecture or on Mies. So we thought, we'll just talk to the residents. And then that's kind of how it started. But then the more content we got, the more we, it kind of ended up like turning into a, a book project because it was just a lot of good material that we were getting. So we worked on it for like three years before it finally came out. And while you disclaim you and your co-editors were not experts in architectural history or Mies van der Rohe, you certainly had expertise as a resident. And for me, a part of what landed about the project was on the one hand, surfacing the voices and the stories of the people that lived there. I mean, I, I think for me, that was the first thing that got my attention. And then secondarily, or maybe more subtly, what comes across is just the care with which the volume has been put together, not just visually, not just graphically, but also textually. I think a, it's a very kind of layered uh, portrait of the place. Uh, it does surface even in the very title, but in the narratives, the story, it surfaces the lived experience of people uh, living together in this place. And and that, for me, uh, was something that I frankly thought that our uh, Case Lafayette Park Detroit edited volume, we weren't able to do nearly enough of, you know, whereas ours was really written for, edited for a kind of academic audience and a design audience. I thought just the vibrancy, the sheer enthusiasm of the voices that you captured was was just an extraordinary contribution. To tell us about the title. Uh, how did you arrive at that handle for the project? Yeah, that was my neighbor, Kanji, who's, uh, so we have these neighbor, like just down the road from us, our neighbors in the townhouse, we have this neighbor, Kanji Katana. He's Indian. Um, he and his wife, Shanta, have lived here since 1973, I think. Um, so they've been here for a really long time, but they spent half the year in India and half the year here in Lafayette Park. And we photographed them for our book, Corinne Vermeulen, did this like beautiful series of photographs of people in their living rooms. And we photographed them and, and we were having a conversation about the blinds <laughs> in the windows because when the building, when the house, the townhouses were first designed, they had vertical blinds. And then I guess there was also this pretty major issue with condensation on the inside of the windows where it would kind of like run down onto the floor and then kind of like destroy the floor. Kanji said something about how they changed the blinds or they didn't like the blinds or something. And, and he said something like, I'm sorry, Mr. Mies. But he said something like that, like, I'm sorry, Mr. Mies, if this doesn't work with your style or whatever. And then we just thought it was really funny how he, or I thought it was really funny that he referred to, he was just sort of joking about Mr. Mies because I think that like, that for me kind of, for us, it kind of captured this sort of feeling in the neighborhood where it's like, one of the things we liked about this neighborhood was that 
it felt like if this was in any other bigger city or like more kind of like moneyed city, like all the people living here would be like, you know, modern architecture aficionados. But in Detroit, the people who are living in Lafayette Park, for the most part, they know about Mies. They know, I mean, they know that it's like kind of a famous architect or whatever. That's not what brought them to the neighborhood. And they're kind of putting their own, you know, they're doing what they have their own taste or their own thing that they're bringing into the thing. So there's sort of this, there's sort of this idea that there's like Mr. Means or whatever is this kind of figure, but it's not necessarily like, um, I don't know, but there's a kind of like a playfulness around it. So I thought, so that, so that's sort of like where that came from. Yeah. Anyway, we just, the view is like the whole thing, right? Like whether you're in the townhouses or in the towers, these giant windows is like the, is like the, you know, it's like the major draw basically for everybody we interviewed. Melissa Dittmer referred in our conversation to this as uh, all, the almost voyeurism of Lafayette Park. I mean, the, in spite of its decentralized, you know, horizontal landscape driven kind of um, centrifugal space, it is a place where you are proximate to your neighbors. You are living together, uh, in my experience. So I'm interested in that, in that history. So clearly Lafayette Park was on the one hand a resultant of the kind of racist uh, urban renewal practices of the federal government as enabled by the city of Detroit, Mayor Cobo, having, and with the planning department, uh, erased uh, the housing of thousands of black Detroiters in, in the neighborhood known as Black Bottom. Uh, and the site sat empty for four years, of course, as a political failure, as a kind of failure of urban renewal. And it was only through Herbert Greenwald, the Chicago developer, kind of taking up the cause that the project was eventually realized. And Greenwald's argument was for a, a mixed race, mixed class future for the American city. And this was, of course, a fairly radical formulation for uh, projects at that time in the late 1950s. Certainly in the context of urban renewal projects in the United States, it was remarkable. So I'm interested, Daniel, in your experience having studied it, published the book, but also lived there now for some time. To what extent would you describe uh, Lafayette Park as it as supporting that mixed race, mixed class vision today? Yeah, well, I think that it's really changed since the bankruptcy. So, when we published the book, the book came out in 2012, and things were starting to shift, but you still had it did still feel really like a mixed class, mixed race, you know, kind of an enclave in the city, and definitely more racially integrated than other parts of the city and then the suburbs, you know, and in that way it felt, you know, so it was very, it felt very unique. And I think, but I think even then other people from other parts of the city would kind of, would kind of joke that is a bit of a bourgeois like neighborhood. People would sort of talk about it as this gated community, even though it doesn't actually have physical gates. I think just the tree covered and like the layout and the fact that it's like this sort of super block that's like separated from other street access. It just sort of feels like separate from the city. But, you know, after the bankruptcy, when kind of things were all the sort of finances were all reshuffled and people, all the sort of speculators started coming into Detroit, things really changed here. And Lafayette Park is situated in that area that was designated for all this investment. It's like this sort of like midtown downtown area, this like sort of T-shape that like referred to as new Detroit, quote unquote, there's like new Detroit. And then the rest of Detroit and all the kind of investment was like concentrated in this area. So we saw a lot of really, you know, I mean, there's, yeah, there's just been like a lot of changes. So for instance, like streetlights are be you know, started to be repaired. The um, Lafayette Plaisance, the big park got a lot of funding and actually, so, we, so I'll just say uh, parenthetically that we had a second edition of the book come out in 2019 
And for that, I, we had two new essays, like one from Marsha Music, who was in the first volume, but then also one from Matthew Piper, who's a resident of the Lafayette Towers and no, sort of like tracked a lot of the history between 2012 and like till now. And so he sort of like writes about what happened in the park because I hadn't like, it was like all these changes happened, but they kind of happened incrementally. But like, for instance, things like the sidewalks were repaired. They resurfaced the tennis courts at the north end of the park. They put in a new playground, like replaced one of the playgrounds and they put in a soccer field and, you know, all these new trees. And then the like city started to take care of the park, like mowing it. It used to just get mowed like twice a year, you know, now it gets mowed more regularly. But these things are kind of tied to increasing the property value, you know, around the neighborhood. And so the housing, like the the cost of the units in Lafayette Park and the townhouses where I live, like um, tripled between like 2012 and 2019. Like it's kind of insane. And then between 2014 and 2017, there's just like in our end of Lafayette Park, there's like 20 units and seven of them changed hands, you know, and it was people who were coming in and paying cash for the units and buying them for like way more than they had sold for before. So it's very palpable, you know, like it changed the class of people that can afford to live in Lafayette Park has definitely changed. And then even in the towers, which are rentals, in 2012, when our book came out, the towers were in foreclosure. They had been kind of mismanaged by this New York-based developer group called the Northern Group that just was like absentee, you know? And so they were down to like 50% occupancy. They would have like, there was like a week where they didn't have any heat, you know, it was it was a mess. Like we actually lived there at the moment, at the first moment of transition. It was like one of the first things they did was they came in and like fired all of the staff that had been there for like, you know, 20 years or whatever. They fired all the doorstep and then offered to hire them back at like lower wages. So that was awful. So that the occupancy was way down. Then it went into receivership. And so like HUD took over and then HUD sold it to this guy, I think in 2013. And then he kind of built it back up. And so rents have been going up. They're not as high as some of the new construction, like as the new places that are getting built in Detroit, the new developments, but it's still higher and people are kind of slowly getting pushed out. And so the sort of like the overall like fabric is definitely changing now. It's not really the same kind of multi-class, multi-racial neighborhood that it was, you know, and in some ways it feels like maybe it had been kind of it had managed to be that for so long just because of the disinvestment in Detroit. You know, it kind of like held on for a long time. Yeah, now it's a different moment. Although I'm saying that all, but actually since COVID, I don't even know what's going to happen now because a lot of the construction projects that had been going since COVID seem to be on hold, you know? So there's things kind of like on the west side of Lafayette Park, sort of projects that there's just like these empty fields where I think there were projects that were supposed to be going up that aren't happening now. And I don't know, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. So you mentioned the fact that Lafayette Park had both been more mixed racially, ethnically than either the city or the suburbs, but also had a tradition of, of, you know, uh, occupants that had self-selected from the, from the progressive side of things. You know, it was a place where people chose to be a part of a community that was mixed, uh, both in a variety of measures uh, as you say, as it's maintained its value, one of the ways it's done that is through its maintenance. It's the cooperative form of ownership and the upkeep of the grounds that gave a, a perception, I think, to many outsiders that it was, in fact, gated, as you say, not a gate to be found, not a fenced off community, in fact, quite open and porous. But yet somehow the, the prosperous image of this kind of mature landscape uh, in some ways leaves leaves that sense for many viewers, I think. 
I had a minor dust up with uh, Blair Kamen, the extra critic of the Chicago Tribune. He referred to Lafayette Park as a, quote, bit of an enclave, close quote. And I, of course, you know, had to remind him that enclave in the Latin comes from lock and key. And in fact, there's not a key anywhere. But in that regard, I've been struck by the, the example that Lafayette Park presents because it connects back to that original idea of modernity, that original notion of the Enlightenment and that sense of maybe the, the European version of modern architecture, that it feeds a social need. It, you know, And the notion that a developer in the 1950s could have a publicly acknowledged mixed race, mixed class future for the American city strikes me again as a very, very timely uh, call. Obviously, we need different instruments today, different tools, uh, but I really... I, have come to enjoy the account of Lafayette Park and living in it and the people's voices that you gathered in the publication. So thanks for the book, uh, Danielle Aubert. Thank you for having me. Great. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilmore, Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham. To learn more, visit fatac.gsd.harvard.edu.